One of the things I was thinking about as I was um, preparing this new series, Grow and Gather, which is really all about us coming up to this 24th, the Celebration Sunday, and yet at the same time, we are looking at um, how God has been at work in, in, in making himself known. And, and I thought before we get into these few messages, it would be important to do kind of like a prologue. You ever come to a book and they kind of give you a little bit of an understanding possibly of what's going to happen or why they wrote it or something along that line. And so we're going to be looking at some messages in Chronicles. In fact, First Chronicles 22 verse 1 is kind of the climactic verse of the chapter we're going to look at today, 21-1 through 22-1. And it ends in verse 1 of chapter 22. Then David said, the house of the Lord is to be here, and also the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. And, and that verse of that chapter is such a radical statement of the reality of God's presence. The writer of Chronicles specifically tells the story of how God, through David, made his home to dwell from, earth on, uh, from heaven down to earth. And it's the story of God moving here to dwell with us. And, and, and the writer of Chronicles is looking at the history of, of when that happened. And, and he lists, if you go through Chronicles, and if you've ever had a chance to read it, you'll, you'll begin in First Chronicles, and you'll just kind of want a page to do it quickly, because you begin with a bunch of genealogies, and you kind of go, I don't get this, it makes no sense. And the reason it begins with genealogy is because in an oral culture, it was very important to have an understanding of, of, of why you were here and who came before you and where you're going and, and what to look forward to. And so they would list this genealogy, and it was, the whole purpose of that was to show that this person, David, who was a king after God's own heart, was called from the people to lead them. And then as you continue on and you read in this book of Chronicles, you see the heart of David as he wants the ark of God, which isn't, in, it, first before that, in fact, they show David conquering Jerusalem and making that kind of the, the holy city. And he wants God to live there with him, so he moves the ark of the covenant there. And then after they move the Ark of the Covenant there, David is living in this wonderful home built of cedar and everything else. And he looks over and he sees that God is still in a tent. And he wants to build a house for God. And so as you go on in Chronicles, what you find here is it shows you this heart of David that wants God to live present here among us. And he wants to build a, not a tent, a temporary dwelling. He wants God to live there permanently. And so as we look at today, we're going to look at the fact that here's the site that was chosen for the temple. And then it goes on, and next week we talk about the materials that were gathered that really bring um, the whole purpose of all the different materials that were gathered was to bring a sense to the whole world of the glory of this God who lived in this place. They didn't want their God to live and look like he was living in a tent. They wanted everyone to see the splendor of this God. And then as you go on, you see how people take their resources and they bring them together and say, what, what, whatever we can give. In fact, the leaders led with that. And as they led, then the people came around it and they gave all the resources necessary to build this temple. And the temple's built and then you have the picture of God moving in. And so that's kind of, as we, I wanted to give you a little bit of a backdrop. The goal from the beginning chapters of the Bible to the final chapters of the Bible is a story about, about how God wants to be with us. It's a story from the first page to the last 
of what I call the with God life. He goes, I'm here and I want you to live with me. And the temple is about the presence of God coming from up here down here. And Jesus prayed, remember that prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus basically comes and says the kingdom of God has come in him and he wants all of us. The model prayer he prayed was that we would pray what's up here would begin to come down here and live among us. And as we look at this whole passage of scripture and everything, you you get this, this whole point that what God is seeking to do is to call us to live with him. And so when we talk about um, grow and gather and what we're, we're about, we're not about building some buildings. We're really about facilitating whatever way we can in this community and throughout the world, how we can bring people into that with God life. How we can bring the presence of God up there, down here, so that wherever you live, wherever you work, whatever you do, as you live with the knowledge that God is with you, you bring him there. What I find is really interesting is God desires to do that, but guess what? He does it by asking us to participate with him. And this whole story is about how he works with those who participate with him to bring his presence wherever they are. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to pray. Father, we thank you. We ask that you would take these uh, thoughts and words which you have prepared in my heart, and I ask that you would speak to our hearts about how incredibly loving and how incredibly great you are. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Before you're seated, turn to someone and say thank you for being here and maybe get to know their name for a second. Thank you for taking a moment and greeting them and thanking them for being here a part of our day. A number of years ago, I had an experience where um, I grew up in the Rockford area and so I had known uh, the congressman from Rockford and, and we had the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. And you know how you get one of those trips and those tours and we got one of those behind the scene kind of trips and tours. And I remember walking in different places. I remember walking through um, the House of the Senate where the, and, and where the House of Representatives meet. And I remember thinking, looking at that floor, and, and, and I like history, so I remember thinking to myself, unbelievable. As I looked at the floor, I thought, the decisions that were probably made here. Some of the things that happened in this place, as I kind of looked at the floor, some of the people who stood on this floor, and some of the, the, the choices that influenced our nation and actually altered history. As I was thinking about floors, I was thinking about the floor that, that you have your feet on right now. You ever wondered what has transpired in that seat that you're sitting in? a little space that you are occupying. Over the years, what's maybe happened there that a life maybe has sat there and in and, and that little two-by-two two square foot of carpeting. Take a look at it just now. Hopefully, it's, it's, if it's stained, we're hoping to replace it, okay? <laughs> but just look at that little piece that, 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 that maybe you were standing on in that little area that you were standing during singing and... And guess what? Maybe in that place where you're at, there was a person who prayed a desperate prayer for a child who had lost their way. 
Or maybe a hand was raised in exultant praise because they were thanking God for a job they had received or a pay raise they got or an acceptance letter to a college or an illness that was healed or praising God for some kind of work in their life. Or maybe you're sitting in a place where there was another person and they had their hands kind of holding one another and they were filled with joy because of the renewed commitment they had in their marriage, the forgiveness that maybe had taken place. Or maybe you're sitting in a place where a hand was reaching out and dropping into an offering plate, a financial commitment that took real sacrifice, and that commitment was given, and that actual commitment energized the work of God somewhere across the world, maybe, to touch a heart or life. I was talking to someone after the service, and they said, you know, when you were giving this part, I I wanted you to know where we were sitting was in the same place. In fact, there's a theology of place. I learned this when I was in seminary. Sometimes you sit in the same place, not because it's familiar and you do like to do that, but you sit there because the memory that you had there from before of how God's had worked in your life, and sometimes it's easier to get to that place again. I would love for you to kind of, in the future, move closer, and that memory could be tighter. (laughs) But they told me, about they said, you know, when you have you're talking about a hand being raised and, and that hand being raised with a humble and open heart confessing their sin, they invited Jesus in their life, and their life trajectory has changed since then. It's altered them and their family. And they said, We were one of those people. Maybe it was in a place you're sitting where a head was nodding, and as I was preaching, I thought you were just like right with me, and then I realized later you're just asleep. I mean, I don't know what that space represents. Have you ever thought about the floor you're standing on and what it represents? Every day, every year, where the temple of God was built, it was built on that place for a purpose. That floor that people stood upon represented something incredibly important that happened, and it was to be recalled. And the the, the writer of Chronicles writes the story that we're going to look at that talks about what happened in that place. That building site has a specific reason for why it was built where it was built. And today, um, Islam's Dome of the Rock sits on that site. And we have a, a slide that if you've been to Israel, there it is. That's now where the Dome of the Rock of Islam has it. But that, was, that space was a threshing floor. And that little piece of land was where David's temple was built. And it's the story that I want to share of a census and a plague and an acquisition of Araunas, and some of you might know it as Ornan the Jebusite's threshing floor. And that's one of the Hebrew variants in the King James Version. But in the New International Version, if you, you want to follow along in chapter 21 of First Chronicles, it's Arauna, the Jebusite. And it was his threshing floor. And the threshing floor is an interesting thing. It's because it's a place where wheat or grain would be thrashed. It, it would receive blows. And the blows were to remove the husk so that the seed would be separated. And it was on that floor where God said, I want to build my house there. This is where I want to dwell. The story is also told that we're going to look at is sold in 2 Samuel 24. Except in, in, in Samuel's narrative, there's no explicit link between the story of the threshing floor and the site of the temple. You see, the chronicler tells that story, and he uniquely wants us to know. In fact, it's the whole climax of his story. 
When you go to 2 Samuel 24, it just ends and it talks about David and, and it really ends with the, the, the need for a deliverer who is without sin. And, and that'll maybe make sense as I go on. But this story ends here in, in chapter 21, verses 26, the end of that verse to chapter 22, verse 1, is, is unique to the chronicler. And he adds it as a climax that here, at this place, on this floor, David bought the land upon which the house of God was built. And it sets up the story that follows. So that we talk about next week's the materials and all the rest that goes on. But this is a place where the grace of God dwells. And you have to ask yourself, why? What's important about this threshing floor? What actually happened here? What is it that the chronicler wants us to know? And I want to kind of share that story with you. I, instead of reading through the scripture, I'm going to kind of just go through it so you have an understanding of it. What I'd love for you to do, though, is take chapter 21, and this week, and in the next couple of weeks, read through the rest of the Chronicles. Because we're going to kind of do a few things in that. So if you read the next chapter, 22 on, you'll kind of be with us. But this story is very interesting. David calls for a census in both, in both accounts. It's a, a census is called. And Joab, who is David's military commander, he says to Joab, he says, Joab, I want you to count and see how many men we have serving in the military. And, and Joab's response to that is one of shock and horror. You've got to be kidding me, David. You don't want to do this. And, and we're told that Satan actually incited David to do this in this account. And throughout the Old Testament, whenever the nation of Israel sinned, it left them open for danger. And so here is, we see Satan playing on David's insecurity and fear, simultaneously playing on David's pride and self-reliance, tempting him to take a census. And, and, it, and we're told that in it there's a sin in this census taking. We'll look at that in a moment. And David's actions actually anger God. And that's told, both in, 2 Samuel, that's told in 2 Samuel 24. And you have to understand the anger of God against sin. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever the nation of Israel sinned, it left them open to danger. The point is this. When we act in our own flesh and we act in sin out of our own pride, the Bible tells us again and again there are consequences to our sin. In fact, if you read through the book of Judges, so you have to have an understanding, the children of Israel, the book of Judges is an interesting story because really it's the, it's the law of, of cause and effect. He wants, just you know how many children you want to know that if you do this, you should do this and then you get punished? It's really the whole book is trying to teach children about the fact that when you go your own way, God punishes. In fact, um, we read in, in Judges that, and the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them over to the hands of plunderers. Catch that word, gave them over to the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before them. And that's, that's sold in 214, 8, 10.7, just goes all the way through. It's the idea is, is what he's trying to get across is you will reap what you sow. And so here we have this um, sin, and, and David, it, we're told, has a, a prophet named Gad who comes before him. And, and, and whenever David would sin, it seems like a prophet would come and kind of, kind of point his finger on his chest in a, in a way of saying, hey, look, you have to realize what you did and the consequences. And before it was Nathan, this time it's a guy named Gad. Gad comes to him after the census has been completed and he tells David that he must face God's judgment. And Gad says something interesting. He says, you know, God's going to give you a choice of, of your punishment. You know, ever done that as a parent? You either get a timeout chair, or you know what I mean, that kind of Well, God says you, you, you have a choice. You have three years of famine. You have three, years, or three months of, of 
of an enemy conquering you and causing you to be overrun. Or you have three days of a plague. David, you choose one. And David's choice is interesting. He, he basically says, I just will take the one that's in the hands of God, not in the hands of man. It's an interesting thing. I'd rather put myself in the hands of God than in the hands of man. And we're told that a plague is sent by God, so the three-day plague is sent. And David repents, and God at a certain point relents. And it's where he repents, where David cries out on this threshing floor. It, it, we're told that the angel of destruction is coming there, and at this point, 70,000 have died, and he's continuing, and David falls on his knees and says, God, I repent. What I have done is impacting uh, innocent sheep of my nation, and really, you should punish me and my own family. And at that point of repentance, it says that God halted the angel. And he said to David, I want you to build an altar right there on this threshing floor. And right here, I'm building my home. This is where my presence will dwell. Now that is a cool story, right? And I want to take just a few moments to share with you, I think, three important um, implications of this. There's so many. I, I mean, this would take us two, three hours to go through. So bear with me as I start going and you go, slow down, slow down. Um, you know what? Hop on. Let's go. What I want you to notice in these three things that I want us to take a look at is one is you'll come across as you look at the floor and you find it's a place of grace because God stops and he takes and he stops things there. There's a place of grace and it's always a reminder of God's sovereignty. Every time they stood in that space, it was a reminder of God's sovereignty. Every time they looked at the floor, another thing came to mind. It's a reminder that it is God's strength. And then there's another reminder that takes place, which talks about it's in this place is God's salvation. And so as you begin to look at this, you start out in these first couple verses, and, and, and we're told that Satan... Now, this isn't told in 2 Samuel 24. But in, in this passage of Scripture, we're told that Satan tempts and incites David to take a census. And it's interesting, in this part of Scripture in the Old Testament, only three passages in the Old Testament um, do you have the figure of Satan. In fact, in this passage of Scripture, there is no definite article. It doesn't say the adversary. It just says adversary is what Satan means. And he basically says adversary shows up as if it's his proper name. We just talk about Satan. Well, Satan means the one who is your adversary. He hates you. He wants to destroy you. You know when you call someone joy, you know, look at joy, and she's joyful. Well, when you call Satan by his name, you're calling him enemy. That's his proper name. Adversaries here, you find it three, three times in the Old Testament. This time, Zechariah chapter 3, if you look at that, Satan, it says, stands up in the heavenly court, and he accuses the high priest, Joshua. If you go on, you look in Job chapters 1 and 2, you'll see again, he, he, Satan is found among the sons of God. And again, his primary role is to accuse. So we know him as the accuser in the Old Testament. And in this point, we are also told in Job that not only does he accuse, but he basically says to God, you know, God, Job really loves you and he really follows you and he's an upright person. But you know what? If he just ever lost some of his money, if he lost someone in his family, if he lost this or that, he, he wouldn't follow you. 
I think he does the same thing to us all the time. He goes, you know what? God, let me just tell you, so-and-so, they're here, you know, they're just good time followers. You, the moment any, any pressure, any difficulty comes in your life, you watch, they'll, they'll cut bait and run. They're not with you. And uh, he says that, and he incites, in a sense, he's given the opportunity to see whether Job will be faithful. So you have this kind of same situation. You have the chronicler pulling back the curtains to give us a picture of what's happening in the heavens where Satan is basically saying, and God, at this point, the sovereign God says, go ahead. And he allows Satan, and in the inciting, David sins. There's a mystery around this. And I, I felt like I couldn't go through this because if you compare chapter 24 and, and this chapter, you have to understand there's a mystery taking place here. We see the work of Satan versus the work of God. And in the work of God, when you look at God, we're told in the word of God in James that God never tempts us to sin. He never does. We find that we in our pride and in our own self-reliance will choose to sin, but we're also told that Satan, our enemy, wants to destroy us by causing us to do that. And that's the picture you get here. There's this mystery that the Old Testament is unfolding. It's kind of a confounding mixture of the sovereign God in control of all. And if he's going to be a sovereign God and create people who will love him freely, he has to give them free will. And what you see here is Satan is not seen as some independent, equal power to God. It's not some form of dualism. You see Satan under God, being used by God, allowing the sin to have consequences. And you see this kind of drama unfolding. Now, this would take a lot of time, but I found it really interesting. I've shared about this book before, and I, I think this, I'll just kind of sum this little part up quickly, just to help people understand what's going on here. I, I, I shared with you before this book called The Happiness Hypothesis by a name, man named Jonathan Haidt, not a believer. But I, I, I love his honesty. I was reading through it, and, and he basically, at one point, he kind of says, you know, I just want to, he's kind of, kind of sharing the problem of evil, because every faith, every religion has a problem of evil. Every people, there's this problem. And he goes, the problem of evil has bedeviled many religions since their birth. If God is all good and all powerful, either he allows evil to flourish, which means he's not all good, or else he struggles against evil, which means he's not all powerful. There's basically three resolutions to this. And, and he goes on, he says, one Solution is dualism. There is, a, there is a God and an evil, or there's a good and evil of equal power. That's how some people kind of treat with the problem of evil. And that's not what Scripture says. You have a sovereign God over this independent power not equal to God, Satan, who hates us. And then he says, you know, as you go on, he said there's also another solution that some have talked about it, which is monism, which is this fact that there is one God and he created the world. And and it's much of what the Eastern religions talk about today. Evil is an illusion. The whole purpose of of our life is to live into the goodness of this one all-powerful God. And the whole purpose is to move out of illusion and gain enlightenment so we can live. And I love what he says here. He goes, and there's a third solution. And and the first two are not biblical solutions. And you can see it even in the Old Testament here. 
There's a third solution. I love what he says. The third approach taken by Christianity blends monism and dualism in a way that ultimately reconciles the goodness and power of God with the existence of Satan. This argument is so complicated that I can't understand it. This guy's brilliant. And I just wanted to go. Because everywhere in the Bible, we're told it's a mystery. There are just things that we can't understand, but we know that the Word of God reveals most closely and clearly what happens in the reality of this life. And so as we look at this thing, there's this, there's this whole matter of Satan shows up, but here's what I want to show you about the sovereignty of God. It hit me as I studied this passage of Scripture, as I was studying this week, that ever since God promised David that he would build a house, you know, it comes that you read wrong, you're reading in Samuel and reading in Chronicles that at a certain point, God promises him a house, a dynasty that would go forever, and from this dynasty would be a deliverer. It seems like after that point, that David, this trusting, simple shepherd boy, becomes this all out sinner. And I just, it struck me as kind of strange. You see David, and he's on the run, and, and he's being chased, and all of a sudden he, he conquers, he becomes victorious, and he's over his land, and he's got everything established, and all of a sudden at that point, you see him begin to, you know, rather than going off to war, he stays at home, and instead of doing what he's called to do, he, he's looking across the way, and he sees this woman Bathsheba, and he sins in adultery, and then all this, he's trying to cover up his sin, he actually murders someone by sending him to the front lines, and then you see his family at this point, and this guy who was this incredible ruler who was very involved in running the operations of his nation, now in his home, you don't see him involved. He's a very passive father. All kinds of bad things are happening, and he's not active in it. He's so busy with his business that he's not caring for his family. That, that ring a bell? And then you see this all of a sudden. David's going along, and, and then he starts taking a census. And, and I, I was watching this, and I, I go... David chooses a sin. And this David who was off to such a good start now seems to be heading to a terrible finish. And you might think at this point God might just say, you know, he might just say, hey David, remember the promise of this never-ending dynasty? Remember the house that I said that would be eternal and would bring forth a Messiah? Well, ixne on the house. He doesn't say that in scripture, but that was my thought. I mean, if it was me, it ain't going to happen, David. It's just not going to occur. But here, what, what, what I think is so incredible is God, who tells us, who is sovereign, he will always be faithful to his promises and purposes. And there is no will greater than the will of God. I don't care about how powerful Satan is. Nothing can derail the plans of God, not even your sin. Nothing we see in this word of God can derail the plans of God, not even the nation of Israel's sin. That's what the chronicler wants us to understand. There are consequences to what we do. David sinned and his national family paid a high price. 70,000 or so in that plague died. And you kind of might think to yourself, well, that doesn't seem fair. I can't believe it. You, know, you read the word of God, that just, you know, well, come on, God. He must be a cruel God. And the point always throughout the Old Testament is to give us a picture of what life is really like. You can't say it's not fair there if you don't get real about our own lives here. Is it fair that a, a father might be an alcoholic and as a result of his alcoholism, the family suffers? 
Is it fair that a person who is driving down the road is texting and as a result of texting hits another car and a whole family and a whole group of other people suffer? You've got to, have to ask yourself, is it fair that a person is a business leader, this business leader has this company and this business family and he embezzles a bunch of money and the whole family ends up paying for the price of that action. The reality of what the Word of God tells us is this, that our sin has consequences. It really does hurt other people. So we really can't complain when we look at Scripture and go, hey, you're not a fair... We just, reality tells us that. But here's what reality also tells us, that God is sovereign. And nothing can derail the plans and purposes of God, not even your sin. And just as there are consequences, there are also opportunities by God to get you back on track again. Isn't that wonderful? There are opportunities for, for God to come in. Let me just share with you, there is no derailment. There may be a delay in your life, and that delay might have some consequences. But we don't live under karma. There is a sense that we sow what we reap. There is a sense of the law of, of, of those consequences that we reap. But the Word of God always tells us that God is greater. He's more sovereign. He knows how to step in. He will get his purposes done. And guess what? Even David, who started out good and seemed to be sliding really bad, still, when he comes and he recognizes, acknowledges his sin, here's the wonderful grace of God in this floor, in this place. There is a reminder once again of the sovereignty of God, that when you come before God, God is in control of it all, and God can even take what Satan meant for evil, and he can rearrange it for good. So I don't know where you may be at, and you may be in a place where you're in a place of delay. You've been derailed, but you're not derailed forever because the sovereign will of God tells us in his word very clearly that he has a purpose for your life. And if you want to get back on track, it's a matter of just saying, God, I invite you in. I recognize, I admit it. I want to get on track with you. So when I, I think about this, I love this. The first thing that you note is on this floor, there's a reminder of this, this incredible um, unique greatness of God. This floor is a place of grace where we're reminded of the sovereignty of God. Satan seeks to destroy. He tempts us. He seeks to derail God's purposes, yet God sets a limit. God is still in control. And even when you look at the mess you're in, you can know that God can take that which is meant for evil and turn it to good. He's sovereign. The second thing I, I want you to notice is on this floor, there's a reminder of the unique power of God. This floor is a place of grace because in this, on this floor, as you would look at it, you would be reminded again that my life that I'm called to live is not to be called in my own strength, but in the strength and power of God. And the floor, floor is a place of grace, and every time they would walk into that place, not only they see this sovereign God who will get his purposes done, they would be reminded of this God who has the strength to carry out those purposes if we put ourselves in his hands. You might want to be kind of saying to yourself, why is this census such a big deal, Right? I'd almost love to ask you, what's so big about the census? I mean, if you're a shepherd, shouldn't you count your sheep? You see in the New Testament, that's what he does. He counts, he goes, there's 99 ones missing. That's a good thing. We find even in the Old Testament, there's times where he says the census could be taken. There were some regulations and laws around it. We even read in the New Testament at one point that um, we're actually told that in the days of Caesar Augustus, he issued a decree, right? The Christmas story? that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Because censuses usually were taken for the purposes of getting taxes so that you could run your government. But that's not what's happening here. In fact, 
As you read this passage of Scripture and look at the response of Joab, you'll find that the response of Joab gives you a clue to what's going on. Verse 3 says, Joab, in a sense, is horrified by his action. Listen, he says, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. That's an interesting thing. He's basically saying, You know what? I don't want to do this. Let, Let God just increase our strength. And then he goes on, he says, My Lord, the king... Are they not all the Lord's subjects? Why does the Lord need to do this? Why should you bring guilt on Israel in this decision to take a census? And then verses 4 and 5 show why Joab is so upset. He says, The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. And Joab reported this. He did what he was, he was faithful to his commander. Joab reported the number of fighting men to David in all Israel. There are 1,100,000 who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. And those are really key words when you read through this. Joab's upset. There's two words that are really loaded words fighting men. And the census is directly connected with military purposes. There is both pride and distrust packed in David's decision. You see, David was incited to, in his pride, move to a place of self-reliance. And the pride is seen in this. If you read back to 1 Samuel 13, verses 19 through 20, there's a, there's a, a, a recollection of Israel right before David. And it tells you like 40, 50 years before David. So when David's about 50 years, maybe 40 years into the kingdom here, we're told this, that not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, their mattocks, their axes, and sickles sharpened. See, before David... There was no army. There were no weapons. He had, the, he had at this point built up quite an arsenal. In fact, he had a million plus ready, able fighters. It's one thing to have people who carry a sword. It's another thing to know how to use the weapon. That's what he had. And so David, what was probably happening, and one of the reasons, one of the punishments, was the possibility of being overrun by their enemy. There was probably a growing influence of the enemy around them. And David was tempted around that time to say, I need to build up my army. And he was kind of looking in, kind of going, not relying on the Lord. In fact, one commentator notes this whole idea that how pride leads to self-reliance. Satan's incited by David, uh, incites David by saying basically to David, you can't trust God. You ever been in that situation yourself? You know, in this situation, you really can't trust God. You need, to, you need to come around. You need to kind of manipulate some things to get what you want done. You need to rely on your own ingenuity. You need to rely on your own resources. If you want your needs met here, you need to do this. Anybody live there? I have. Well, here's, here's David. This is what one commentator, I love how he says this. From the context of 2 Samuel 24, which immediately follows the list of David's warriors and their heroic exploits, this particular census was for military purposes and thus represented a turning away from the absolute reliance upon God, which characterized David's early accounts. If you think back to 1 Samuel 17, and you have this little boy David, you go back to early in his life and his dependency on God, his reliance on God. Here is David standing before a huge giant called Goliath. And listen to what he says. 
You came against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Remember the king wanted to put him in all this outfit and he wanted to get him, he wanted to give him a sword and David couldn't even handle the sword and he goes, that's all right, I'll just take a slingshot. All I need is God. All I need to do is trust in God because he goes on and he says this. He says, this day the Lord will give you over to me and I will strike you down and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by, listen, to sword or spear that the Lord saves. But I would like to. Here's David years later. He's gotten successful. Let's, let's count those guys and see how good we are. For the battle, it says in 17 of 1 Samuel, is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And sin isn't the census. The sin is the pride and the self-reliance. The sin is the I-can-do-it mentality. Ever find yourself in that? I just, I kind of go, I don't know if you can relate to it, but I sure can. Ever find yourself where you're in this situation where, you know, after a while you're kind of going, I'm going pretty good at this, God. Yeah, you know, God, he saved you. You, you, you really lied on him and you've been praying for him and all of a sudden you get in your own. And it's so easy to grab the wheel and to start to, to drive the car again. I, I can handle it now, right? And what you see when you look at the floor here is not only the sovereignty of God, who um, no matter how Satan hates you, and no matter if you fall and you get derailed, God can put you back on track. You see this God who comes, who has all the strength in the world necessary to care for you right now. And we're hardest to care for. This nation is hard to care for by God because we are so resource-rich. This church in this area is so hard to care for by God because we are one of the most resource-rich places in our nation. Think about it a second. I'm not just talking about financial wealth. I'm talking about ingenuity and, and executive power. I'm talking about um, abilities and, and talents and, and the means that God has given people. And it's so easy to go, God... We don't need you. I've been praying about this whole thing and this grow and gather thing, and I've been kind of going, God, you know, I've been wrestling with it. And we've been, we've been talking about this whole building thing for about a year, and, and then we took a pause, and God's been working again and, and moving us to this place here in a couple weeks. And I just I hope you can be a part of it and however God leads you. But I have to just say, what's been in my heart, it truly is, and I have to move back to this place again and again. I go, God, I will take whatever you give us because you know what? It's not in that that our, that our plan and purposes fall. It is in you alone. All right? You are our strength. You have something for us. I was thinking about it. You know, I was thinking about these guys in the upper room. Here are these disciples. Jesus has died. They're scared to death. Jesus tells them, I want you to go to the upper room and I want you to wait. He comes and they see he's resurrected. He says, I want you to go wait up there. He doesn't even give them a plan. He just says, wait. And at some point, the power of God will come upon you. And when the power of God comes upon you, you're not, I could, I could tell you all the plans in the world and it still wouldn't make sense to you. Every one of us, for me, I kind of go, I guess I know the plan. We need to have plans. It's not wrong to have plans. But the reality is that when God has a work to done, he's sovereign. There's a purpose to do. He will provide the strength. And so it says when the power came upon them, they went out and they witnessed throughout the world. Right? God can do that. 
And that's what I believe God is calling us to, this incredible understanding that when he wants to build the site of his presence where he's at work, he, he does it with people that can get derailed and they find delays, and he does it with people who come to a place where they go, you know what, I'm not going to rely on myself. We could rely on ourselves because we have all this, I mean, we of all people, of a nation, of a land, of a community could be self-reliant. But we're going to put our knees to the ground and say, God, we want you. And here's the coolest thing about this whole passage. This is what drew me to this at the beginning. Because when they looked at the floor and they saw that this God is sovereign, and they looked at the floor and they saw this God had strength because they began to realize, oh, I didn't tell you this. In Zechariah 3, when Satan comes to him and he, and he accuses Joshua, the high priest, uh, or Ju- yeah, Josiah, I think, the high priest. Anyway, when he comes to him, chapter 4 is the chapter that says, the Lord comes to him and says, not by power nor by might, but by my Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes, I just want you to know, when you are in that place where you're being accused, where you're being attacked, when you're under that, if you stay faithful and you say, God, I'm going to trust you, he can break through that and bring his power and his might, and you will learn, we will learn, that this is not about us, but about him. Some of you have experienced that in your life. Some of you have come to those places where you've, you've been backed against the wall and you've been incited to sin, and you said, no, I'm going to trust you, God, and you've seen God come through. And here's, here's the thing I wanted to share with you. When they looked at the floor, this place of grace, they were reminded of God's salvation. I think this is so incredible. Here is David comes, and he pleads to God, and says, God, I've sinned. My sin is hurting innocent people. I understand the consequences. I understand that I've done this and there's consequences to it. But God, go ahead and, and punish, judge me and my, even my family, judge me. And God says, I see that heart and the repentance in your, in your heart. And on that place, I want you to build an altar to remember forever that the presence of God, the salvation of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God triumphs over sin. And he even breaks at times the consequences or sins that could hurt others. You know how I know that? If you've trusted in Jesus, that means he, through his work, he's the altar that was brought before God and brought up to him. And in that place, he took your sin. And that sin, which meant judgment, that meant you were to be separated from God forever, that you were to, to, as the word of God says, you are destined for hell. God intervened. And in that place of intervention, he said, I want you to know in that place of sin where you've repented, I bring my presence to dwell. And folks, the way we live, when you begin to experience the presence of God, you know, here, here's this guy, and he's building this altar, and, and, and Araruna, the Jebusite, comes to David and says, David, this threshing floor, which was this flat piece of land, he says, you should have it. And David goes, no way. I will not in any way give to God something that doesn't cost me something. He, he did this. And he stopped this here. I will give him my entire life. I will give him whatever it needs. I will give him this land. I'll buy this land for him. Because I want to participate with God in what he wants to do. And in the presence of God, in the midst of people who know their sin, 
You have an ability, every one of us here has an ability, that as we go out, we carry the presence of God. Your attitude, the way you work, the way that you live before others, the way that you love your spouse, the way that you engage with other people, is, an, is, a, is, a, is a form of saying, God, it will, I'm not going to just ride on, on someone else. I'm going to ride on the fact that you, in grace, have built your presence here in my life, and that presence is going to express the same kind of love that you loved me with. That's what God's doing. That's what I'm excited about. When I talk about grow and gather, that's my prayer, that God would grow together here and gather together here people who, who live into the sovereignty and, un, and, and know that it's the strength of God that does it, and then we live in the salvation, that we are offering to people the opportunity, not to be in a building, but to be a, a, a place that facilitates God's touching their lives. And that is what God, I believe, wants us to be about. And that tends to be uh, much of what I've been praying lately. God loves us. God loves us. I know I mentioned this on Easter about my mom passing away, but you know one of the most powerful things in that whole process was her looking at me in the end of her life and, and just saying, I love you, Kevin. I love you. I, I can't love you any more than I do. What a gift, folks. That's, that's God saying to you, I love you. Before he died and Jesus died on the cross, he looked out with his arms spread and he goes, I love you. I love you. And I want to build my presence in your life everywhere you go. And you know what he wants to do? He just wants through you, for you to offer yourself fully. It does cost you something to go out and to love someone who doesn't love you back. It costs you something to speak well of someone when someone's speaking bad of you. It costs you something to say, here's my life, God. Here's my finances. Here's everything about I have. I give it to you because I want you to love others through me. Let's be that place.